Thank you, Father, for this time of, to sit still before you and to humble ourselves before your word. This is your world and we are your people. Father, we want to live well and to live well, we need to listen well to your instruction, to walk in obedience. Thank you for the great privilege of knowing you through the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us, sinners though we be. Father, teach us now through your Holy Spirit. Help us to focus well, to listen well, and uh, help us to grow in our knowledge of who you are and how we fit into your plan of the ages. We commit this time to you now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, last Sunday, following our introductory message to the book of Genesis, I was heading out after the first service, and I ran into our head usher, Stu Smith, and he said, Pastor, he said, did you hear about the the lady who called her elderly husband on his cell phone while he was driving down the interstate? And uh, he answered his phone, and she said, Honey, I just heard on the radio that someone is driving the wrong way on the interstate. He said, it's not one, it's hundreds. (laughs) Well, I invite you to turn to the book of Genesis this morning, but I have to warn you that um, as we open our Bibles this morning and we jump into Genesis now in earnest, and last week being kind of an introductory time where we just talked about, you know, why we're going to do the study and how important it is to us. Um, we're going to put on our glasses today, and they're our worldview glasses, and they're, they're biblical Christianity worldview glasses. They're not the naturalism world glasses. We're going to see God for who He is, and we're going to take Him at His word. Uh, the naturalist, you know, when he puts um, his glasses on, he sees the world through the lenses that say, It's all about man. It must be understood by the mind of man. And if man can't explain it, it can't be. But that's not what we find when we open the Word of God. Let me remind you that we don't open a science textbook when we open the Word of God. We open a book where God has revealed Himself and truth to us. And um, you will find that even if it doesn't always match up with the secular scientist... um, We do not want to capitulate the Word of God to come in underneath the scientists. Now, we believe in science, and we believe in research, and we believe in the study of God's world. Doesn't it say in Psalm 19, uh, 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows us His handiwork. We need to raise up our boys and girls to want to look through the microscope to want to look through the telescope and to marvel at God's mystery. Proverbs tells us uh, that it is the great challenge of kings to seek out knowledge from the world, the natural world. And God put it here, and you know there's no end to the study and the discovery of of the marvel of God's creation. But when we open our Bibles, we don't have all of our questions answered right there, but we have in our hands enough information to give us a firm footing of an understanding of our origins. Now, Genesis is about more than just origin, and if you'll stay with us through the weeks ahead, 
uh, just a tremendous amount of gleaning from the book of Genesis that you will find and foundational theological concepts that are be, being taught there. We'll even see where, where over and over Jesus himself and the, the apostles in the New Testament referred back to Genesis, referred back to Genesis. Well, this morning as we open our Bibles, let's just begin by reading. But as I started out to say, let me remind you that if you take this as truth, even though there are many, many people around us, probably the majority of people around us, and a growing group in the evangelical church world who deny the truthfulness as in a literary truth, a literal truth of Genesis, uh, we are diminishing in our numbers those who hold to a literal six-day creation young earth view. We're going to talk this morning about in the first uh, three or four days of creation, and we want to try to understand what God has unfolded for us here. And we're going to conclude our message this morning by asking the question, what difference does it make? What difference does it make, really, if it's uh, billions of years represented in this text, or if it's a literal six-day period of time, or what difference does it make if it really happened, or if this is just some kind of a, a poetical, picturesque, uh, metaphoric handling of truth that no one can really know anyway? We're going to try to answer that question at the end of the message today. I think you'll realize it is vitally important to our study of God's Word and our understanding of who God is and who we are before him. Let's think before I read also uh, of the context in which this was written. Written Context is always important, isn't it? Context is um, someone in a room like this yelling, fire, fire, and out we go, and there is no fire. In the context of a false alarm and of someone just being stupid or foolish, excuse me, um, that's really wrong. But if there's really a fire and there's smoke rolling out of the heat handlers and the air handlers, in that context of those circumstances, it's very meaningful for somebody to alert us, right? And think about when Genesis was written and who it was written to first and foremost. It's also written to us and to all people of all times, following its authorship. But remember that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were written by what author? What great man of God? Moses. And who was Moses the leader of? The children of Israel. And where did they spend most of their time together? Wandering in the wilderness. And all of these books were written, no doubt, during that time. Moses wrote these things down in a nomadic state of wandering in the wilderness, given to him by God at different times, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And no doubt, these Israelites thought about these things. Well, how did we get here? They've been in the context of, of their slavery in Egypt, where it was many gods and they worshipped all kinds of gods. That was what the ten plagues reflected. It made a mockery of the Egyptian gods. Each one of the plagues mocked their pagan gods. Who do we worship? Who is this God? And Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote down the answers to some of these things and gave it to them. And also, they had seen an interruption, hadn't they, of the natural world. They had seen the, the waters of the great uh, sea parted as they went across. They had seen water flow from a rock in the middle of the desert. And they, had, they no doubt looked up at the stars at night, living out in the desert. 
And they thought about these things. And so God in his wisdom put it down for them to be able to teach their children. It's not the gods of Egypt that created the, the Nile River. You know, it's not some sun god that we worship. It is not uh, Mother Earth and Father Wind or whatever. It is Elohim, the God of all truth. And this is what he's done. Let's read it now. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 19. We'll read for our scripture reading this morning. Just follow along as I read out of the New International Version. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the, ga and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seeds in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars, and God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. We'll stop there in our study, and in two weeks from today, Lord willing, we'll pick it up and, and talk more about creation. This morning I want you to see, and I encourage you to pick up a copy of your notes nearby, on the chair nearby, to to help you just kind of stay focused where we are on the message. We're going to talk about how God initiated all of this. Um, we're going to talk about how there is limited explanation here. We'll admit that, and there are unanswered questions. I want to focus on how God made these direct pronunciations and how with his word he created three distinct separations in the first three days. And then I want to wrap up by talking about these common deviations and how we are so inclined to find natural or humanistic explanation for what God's word simply spells out clearly and simply. First of all, let's look at God's divine initiation. To do this, you kind of need to step back a little bit. It's always a little scary. We don't know what happened before Genesis 1-1, do we? 
That's where it all starts for us. But let's take a look at it. Look what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pre-existent, of course, was God Himself in all of His splendor, in all of His glory. And one of the things that is so difficult for us is to try to understand how someone can live outside of the dimensions of the world as we know it. But take a look at how verse 1 breaks down. In the beginning. In the beginning what? It marks, first of all, the origin of time. The origin of time. We have a very difficult time, don't we, of thinking of, of living without time. You have to understand, we'll see in a minute in, um, in, the, in the paraphrase by Henry Morris there, he uses the word transcendent. God is a transcendent God. That means that he's outside of all of these things. He's not within it looking out. He's on the outside looking in. He's greater than all of that. See, time is a really funny thing to think about. It'll mess up your mind when you start thinking about time. For example, we think we can't live without time because we live in the next one, and let's just cover that, that when God created the heavens, first he cre in the beginning, that's time, God created the heavens, that's space. And once we have space, then we can do what? We can walk from one point of the platform to the other. Why? Because we're living inside of space. We're all inside of this room. And time matters because once we have space and time and they kind of fit together, we can go from one point to the other and, and about a second and a half ago I was over there, but now I'm over here. Time has passed. You see, God is transcendent of all that, and before this, there was no time and no space. God lived outside of it. I can't really explain that or understand it. It's like living in an eternal now. Living in a constant present, I guess. Because how do you live outside of time and say, Hey, Jenk, yesterday when we were eating egg sandwiches and talking about deer hunting, wait a minute, you can't do that. You can't say yesterday if you're outside of time and space because yesterday is a measurement of time. You can't say, hey, wait here a minute. You can't say that. That's time talk. You can't say, I'll be right back. That's time and space talk. Listen, this is why it's good to stop and meditate and to think about how great our God is. And that's why we started our service today. And some of you... Still choking a little bit on that old hymnal that Pastor Van insists we sing out of. <laughs> Immortal, invisible, God only wise. I heard you back there. <laughs> He's outside of all that. And that's one reason why we sing out of our hymnal, because the, they did such a good job of capturing it the great theology of who our God is. You can't bring him inside this room. You can't measure him in time and space. He's immortal. He's invisible. He's God only wise. He's infinite. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. And the only way we can understand him is by taking what he has revealed to us in his word and what he's revealed to us in creation. And I dare say the two are not equal. General revelation, yes, it teaches us a lot about God. The sky and the trees and acorns and, you know, the life cycle of a gray squirrel. We can marvel at God. 
but we get to know Jesus Christ intimately through his word. Special revelation. In the beginning, that's the origin of time, God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that is mass or matter. And that'll mess up your mind too, thinking about a world without mass or matter. No stuff. No oak trees to go cut down and build pulpits and stuff like that. How does that work? I don't know. I, I don't have it all figured out, the physics of it. And in fact, no one does. We only know what God has given us. And he said, in the beginning, that's when I started time. I created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. And here we are now in this dimensional world. And God has given us enough information that we can come in underneath his authority and know his mind and know his will and know his plan of the ages. You know, it's interesting. I like to think about heaven, don't you, sometimes? Won't be long. My mom will be going to heaven, you know, unless the Lord returns. You have people in your world like that. You got to... You start falling in love with heaven. And one of the things I think about heaven is God started it all in the beginning and in the end of our book He shows us how He remakes all the worlds and He changes it all. And one of the great things about heaven that just mess up your head. Heaven's going to be outside of time and space and matter. I think they might be included somehow, but what if in the world to come, in heaven, in all of God's glory, and in our understanding at a much higher level of his transcendence, although in eternity future, we will still not understand God completely. Because we're the created, he's the creator. What if there's 17 dimensions in heaven? We have like three right now. What if he adds ten more dimensions? How awesome will that be? You can be able to do and go and see and think ways that you, we cannot do right now, right? We see through a glass darkly now, don't we? I hope you're ready to go to heaven. I hope you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. That your sin is forgiven and you've accepted his free gift of salvation. Well, let's look at how did all this happen is a question that certainly comes to mind. Henry Morris in his classic book, The Genesis Flood, gives a paraphrase of 1-1. The transcendent, omnipotent Godhead, we will see later in Genesis here, not too far ahead, that the Trinity is present in creation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why he uses the word Godhead. The transcendent, omnipotent Godhead called into existence the space, mass, time, universe. See, God is outside of that, but then he spoke it into existence. Remember, God is outside of time and space. He is not the compiler, but he is the creator. You see the difference? God didn't go to the lumber yard. God made the lumber. All right? It is interesting, though, and I put down C2, 19, and 22. We'll not take time to look there now. We'll bump into this later, and we'll question it a little bit then. But it is interesting, in chapter 19, in verse 19, uh, it talks about how he created all of the breathing animals out of the soil of the ground. Instead of out of nothing, he took the, took the land mass, and he made it into animals. And 
And then when he uh, created Eve, he took her rib, didn't he? So sometimes God does that, but God doesn't have to do that. Let's look at verse 2, verse 3 a little bit. Here's where we can really ask ourselves some questions and in some way, and even to the frustration of some, we find Scripture somewhat limited in its explanation. It just kind of says it how it is. God gave us what He wanted us to know. But look at verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Notice how when God spoke time space, and mass into existence, it is also, it was formless at this point. That is, it was there, but it hadn't taken shape yet. He hadn't molded it like the excellent craftsman that he is. He hadn't put it into the place where he wanted it to be. Now, this has caused a lot of speculation. This has caused a lot of problems with people. Because they will read into this verse that, that this is a state of chaos, and you can get that a little bit out of the language, the idea of the words here that it was formless. You can see this idea, formless and empty. It has the idea on your notes there, formless and empty has the idea of desolation or a barrenness, an unfinished product. It's materials in their raw form. And there it is. And I want you to notice he uses the next phrase he uses, there was darkness over the surface of the deep. And the word deep there, the word deep there has the idea of water. It's used that way in the Hebrew word in other places in our Old Testament for like they threw him into the deep or down into the deep. It's, it's an idea of being in water. And it's obvious, we won't delve into it, but there's lots of chapters and books written about it as they think through what this was like there's lots of water present. And it isn't interesting. Everywhere we look in creation, even to this day, water is a huge entity, isn't it? How much of our bodies, for example, is made up of water? How much of an oak tree that's alive and functioning is filled gallons and gallons of water? Everywhere is water without water. And aren't you glad God gave us water instead of, like, Diet Pepsi? We'd be in a real fix, brushing our teeth with Diet Pepsi. No, he gave us water. And it's also parallel. Look at verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. You get the idea of this huge, maybe a sphere, I don't know if it's a sphere or not, of water. And the Spirit of God was hovering, and here it's going to say it, hovering over what? Over the waters. So one thing we know is there's lots of water. And we also know that almost everything in creation is made out of a great percentage of water. The idea of hovering, the Spirit of God hovering, is the idea of, of a brooding, like a, like a mother hen who's hovering over her chicks. A brood hen, we'd call her. She's, it's a brooding. It's, it's, ooh, it's kind of the picture you get. And it's darkness, right? It's darkness. The next phrase we have in verse 3 is, that's about all I know about verse 2, by the way. And the beginning of verse 3 is, And God said. I really like this. 
It's kind of a phrase you can read over and just keep going. You need to notice, and when you read your Bible, watch for repeated phrases. It's going to say it some nine times now in chapter 1. And God said, verse 3. And God said, verse 6. And God said, verse 9. Then God said, verse 11. And God said, verse 14. And God said, verse 20. And God said, verse 24, 26, and 29. And God spoke. God said... There are repeated, direct pronunciations where God speaks now. And if you want to ask the question, well, how can all this happen? Here's what the Bible says. Let's turn to Psalm 33, shall we please? Turn with me to Psalm 33, verses 6, and I also want to look at verse 9. And you ought to underline these verses in your Bible. They're excellent. Psalm 33, verse 6. Look what it says, and you can fill these out if you're keeping up with the notes. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. How clear is that? I can't really understand what the Bible's saying here. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Now look at verse 9. For he spoke, and it came to be, he commanded, and it stood firm. I'll tell you something. I really like a God like that. That's my God right there. That's the God I worship, the one who is transcendent outside of time, mass, and space, and with the word of his mouth, kazam! There it is. That's a God worth getting to know. I want to tell you, do you remember my cardboard box if you were here last week? My mother-in-law gave me four when I got home. She said, I was sitting back there, and I was looking at that box, and I thought to myself, why did they leave that box up there? That's, I can't believe Van let that box stay up there. They should have got that out of there. And I thought maybe you were up to something. There the box. The box was empty, right? And the idea was if we take our box and we just leave our empty box the naturalist, the secularist, the humanist says, there cannot be a God who's interfacing and interacting with us. But if I just sit still with this box long enough, given enough time, pretty soon we'll be able to pull out of our box everything that is. I'm going to tell you something. I have a whole lot less heartburn with an infinite, almighty, transcendent God who with the word of his mouth can speak the worlds into existence than I can just waiting around for something to show up in my empty box. That a box full of nothing, with nothing put in it, with no one acting upon it, can end up with everything if you just watch it long enough. Don't make a fool out of yourself. Humble yourself before Almighty God. Fear His name. Hebrews 11.2, we won't turn there, but this is what it says. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's, guess what the next word is, command. At his command, he spoke the worlds into existence. And then it says, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. There it is. Out of nothing, God created everything. All right, let's move on. Then he, there are then three distinct separations that we see. He says, God saw that the, uh, let there be light, he says, verse 3, and God said, okay, these are these pronunciations, and God said, let there be light, 
and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. Separation number one was light from darkness. Now, right here, a lot of people choke as well. Because if you look ahead, you're going to see that the sun, the moon, and the stars were put into place. And to mark the beginning of the day and the end of the day, it even says there on day four's description, and there it has light. That's when the sun was created, day four. This is day one. And so a lot of people really struggle with this. What in the world is the light here? I don't know. But I'll tell you something, and you can go Google it. You want to mess up your mind real good, and you want to find out how smart we are? Try to figure out what light is, period. Light is an incredible entity. In fact, light shares some qualities of, of, of electricity and of, of, a, of a particle matter. It's amazing. I don't know much about it. But, for example, we can't even see light if there's not particles for light to reflect off of. And no one really knows what light is. Nobody, they know how it works. They know how fast it goes. But they can't figure it. They don't really know about it. All I know is that God said, let there be light. And there was light. We know that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Certainly his radiance was sufficient. But we also know there was darkness present. So I'm not really sure that that was a light that came from God himself. Some people surmise that because of all the water that was there that there was a huge fog. And that on day four, he didn't really create the sun, the moon, and the stars, but he let the fog burn off, or he removed the mist that was present so that you could see he revealed the sun, the moon, and the stars. I don't think I believe that. I'm, I'm more comfortable with just saying, I don't know. But when he says it was good, it was good, and when he says it was morning and evening and that was the first day, I have a real hard time understanding that to be anything other than the first day. He then separates water from water, if you'll notice in verse 6, and then he separates land from water as well. You'll see that in verse 9. Let's just move on through that as we see those distinct. Let's wrap this thing up by looking at four what I call deviations. We'll back up into this creation story. We're going to be on it for a couple more messages. There's more to get here. And we're trying to just understand and take the Bible and, and open it and study it. Four common deviations. Because what happens? You see, one of the things that that I kind of choke on is that when people open up their Bible and they read it and it kind of makes sense, you can take it for what it is. There's no understanding apart from the fact that this is a morning and evening, it's a day, it's six days. Later on, we're going to see in Exodus chapter 20 when he gives the Ten Commandments, he clearly states that all of creation was made in six days. But all of a sudden, a few hundred years ago, some guys came along and started writing books that denied the scriptural account that God spoke out of nothing and created the worlds, and this is the way it is, because of some of the unexplained uh, parts of scripture, and then because of trying to put things together like, like a fossil record and looking at layers of sedimentary rock that is laced full of fossils and dead bones, somebody thought up the bright idea that, you know what, this had to take millions of years. 
Well, a lot of people really believed the Bible 200 years ago. And so they, right away, there was a tension. And so what they did immediately is starting to try to put things together and try to say, well, we can fit this into the Bible. And so some of these deviations are the gap theory. The gap theory, that is that between verse 1 and verse 2 in Genesis, for example, that because of the formlessness that God actually recreated a world that was already there and there's millions of years represented and then all that water stirred up the, stirred up the materials, the soils, the uh, minerals of the earth, killed all the animals that were present, laid them down in the fossil layer. And we're going to talk about fossils, don't worry. But, and, and this was even popular, popularized, the gap theory, the ruin and reconstruction theory are, is similar to the gap theory. It's not exactly the same. But they're basically one and the same concept. C.I. Schofield, many of you grew up with Schofield Bibles. He brought that in, in the early 1900s, into his Bible and allowed for that and said, modern science and the Bible do not contradict because there's a gap between verses 1 and 2. For that to happen, there had to be millions or billions of years go by, and it's not a young earth, it's an old earth. The day-age theory is similar, that is, that the six days of creation are not 24 hours, but that they are represented by millions or eons of time. The framework hypothesis is a little less familiar to you probably, um, but as I've been doing some reading, this is catching on in some evangelical circles even. It is amazing. I said to Janet the other day when I read from a book about some other stuff to her, I said, it is incredible how inside the evangelical church anything is acceptable nowadays. People who say they are God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians can believe anything they want to believe. It's just unbelievable. And the framework hypothesis is a group of theologians who are saying, no, 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 Genesis chapter 1 cannot be literal. It has to be hypothetical. In fact, it's just a poetical description of stuff that we can't really get in our finite minds. We'll readdress that in just a minute. Why is that a problem? And so this is a framework for our thinking. It's not real. It's just a framework of our thinking. I'm not sure I even understand that. And then ultimately, the Big Bang Theory. And not too many Christians believe this, but many do. And in fact, there is a growing number of, in, in Christian colleges that are teaching a theistic evolution, and we're going to talk more about that in a future message, almost a whole message just on evolution and theistic evolution and why it cannot be. But the Big Bang Theory is this idea that there's a model that somewhere there was this, this vacuum or black hole of nothingness, but it was all energy. It was unbelievable, and there are black holes that exist. Where did that energy come from? And somehow, because when you look through a telescope, we live in a universe that appears to be expanding it's getting bigger. They believe that an explosion of some kind took place. It burst out. I want to tell you something. Don't check your brain in at the door. I have blown up a lot of things. And I've never improved them one time. I don't even want to tell you everything I've blown up. It doesn't improve anything. And the veracity of my claim was affirmed by none other than our expert resident blower-up guy, Joe Palmer, who does dynamite for a living, and he came up to me and said, you're exactly right. <laughs> Nothing gets better when you blow it up. And I believe him. Why would you teach that to your children? Hey, 
sonny. Kabam! And you have a kidney or a liver or a lung? You're out of your ever-loving mind, I have to tell you that. Our conclusion, why does it matter? You see, here's one, you know, you just back up for a minute. What's happening? And, and you know what? I'm not trying to mock anybody. I just am... Why can't we open our Bible and just read it and understand it for what it is? Why does I, do I have to let my ninth grade secular biology teacher force me into reinterpreting the obvious conclusions of what God is saying to me? Just don't do that. Don't do that. And that's why Christians are buying into all these theories because we are embarrassed to open our Bible in case, the, and we're from West Virginia, we got that going against us. We probably met each other at a family reunion and so we're, you know, we're flawed in our genetics to begin with and then on top of that, we believe the Bible. And I'll tell you something. Nobody likes to be thought of as kind of an ignoramus, except when you're at Cracker Barrel playing that little board thing. <laughs> and I'll tell you something else, and I go to pastor's conferences, and it's amazing to me to be in a room full of pastors and to realize that you can feel it in the conversations and in the talk and in the trends of the day and in reading my pastoral magazines they're so afraid of being marginalized and being called irrelevant by the secular thought of the day. I do not need their approval. I do not expect them to understand me. Let me say it again, though. Raise your boys and girls up to be scientists, to look through microscopes. Pursue knowledge. Educate yourself. Just don't throw away the Bible. We don't need to compromise with these other views. Number one, why? Because the very reliability of Scripture is at stake. Do you understand that? The very reliability of my Bible is at stake. When your child goes to school, and we talked about this last week, and your teacher or even university, it's even a worse problem there. You think you have a grounded child. They go to university and their professor twists their brain around and convinces them that they are completely a moron for just taking the Bible at its word, and then the very reliability of the Bible is at stake. It's a word picture like this. I grew up on going to Christie Lake in Michigan, a little, nice little lake in southern Michigan where my dad built a summer home on the, on the lakefront there. And we had an old rowboat and a canoe. They're both behind my shed right now. Pretty rough shape, but I still use them. And in the back of both of those... There's a round plug with a rubber seal around it with a little hinged handle on it that decompresses it and pulls it out. You put it in the back hole in the bottom of your back of your boat, shove the handle up, and it swells it and stops it. Because if it rains or if you take on water, when you get to shore, you pull the boat up on the shore, keep the front end up a little bit, pull the plug, and the water will drain out. But here's, what ha here's what's happening. When we begin to question the reliability of Scripture and allow the secularists to impact me in a negative way, it might not sink my boat. I might be able to live for a while with the reality that, you know, if chapter 1 is a metaphor, chapter 3 on, that's real. But you know what you're doing, and you're definitely doing this to your kids when you start talking about that. You're pulling the plug out of the back of your boat, and we used to do this 
accidentally from time to time, jump in the boat, head out to go fishing, only had an hour, or go out to go swimming out of our boat and dive out or turn it over. And we're going out there, all of a sudden our feet are in the water. Forgot to put the plug in. And here's what you're doing. You're pulling the plug on your Bible boat. You might not be sinking your boat all at once, but you're pulling the plug on the back of your Bible boat and you're starting to question the integrity of how reliable this ship is going to be for very long. And at first it stays floating, but the next generation it's going to be half full. The third, the, by the third generation, it's gone, baby. And you start allowing the secularists to, int to interpret Genesis 1 for you, and your grandchildren will not fear God. Mark it down. Genesis, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 in the Ten Commandments clearly says, For in six days God created the earth and all that is in there, my paraphrase. Secondly, we have the, the stage of the reliability of Scripture, and on the reliability we build its authority. Because it is reliable, it is also authoritative. If it was not reliable, it would not be authoritative. A couple bullet points here. At the end of it all, God called it good. At the end of it, God called it good. Take a look at this model here that Keith just put up. If God used a big bang, and that's what I've had people tell me. Hey, dude, your empty cardboard box, it all started with a big bang. Where did the big bang come from? God did it. Do you see how many times it says in this passage, it is good? Look at the model. The top model is the Big Bang model. Kabam! Stars, sun, molten earth, first oceans, 3.8 billion all this time. Look at the bottom model. Just the pages of Scripture, the simple story of Scripture, spoken by the Word of God, and He said. If you were done, if you were God, would you sit back after uh, oh, 11 billion years and say, that's good, that's good. What model is good? You can't call it good. You can't call the fossil record of death and dying and decay, and that's the next bullet point on our, on our sheet, you can't have billions of years of death and dying and the accumulation of dead bones before chapter 3 because the Bible clearly says that death came into the world when Adam sinned. Before that, it was a perfect world and there wasn't death and dying. And if this death and dying model of the billions of years with the fossil record embedded in it before chapter 3, how could God step back and look at any of these models of the deviations and say, it is good? It's not good. Death and dying's not good. It's horrible. They literally have fossils of animals that have cancer in their bones. There's all kinds. The fossil record screams of creation. People, it doesn't talk about billions of years. We'll talk more about that. If Genesis 1 is a metaphor, then what is Genesis 3, I ask you? Listen, you cannot open the door to this stuff, and it doesn't mean we're afraid to ask questions, but when you go down that road and you let the plain truth of Scripture be reinterpreted by secular scientists, you now question not only the reliability of Scripture, but the very authority of Scripture is at stake, and ultimately, my responsibility to Scripture is at stake. I don't think it comes across funny, but I really liked it when I wrote it, that little paragraph there. The Bible is our authority, not science. 
When the accepted scientific views of the day are contrary to scripture, we do not adjust the Bible to fit. And then being influenced by my evolutionary friends, I decided, you know what? Give it enough time and it all becomes clear. You wait and see. The longer the time that goes by and ultimately someday, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess and it's going to be made clear. Don't give up on your Bible. Science changes by the hour. The Bible doesn't change. What do I mean by my responsibility to Scripture and we need to shut down and go? I challenge you to take your Bible and read Luke chapter 16 in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a story of a rich man and a poor man. The rich man went to hell or Hades, a place of torment. It's clear in the story. It reads easily. The poor man went to what we call Abraham's bosom, an intermediate state, a, a place, heaven. Just think of it as heaven. The rich man cried out to Father Abraham and he said, Father Abraham, please, please let someone come back from this horrible death and torment place and go tell my five brothers not to come here. And do you know what Father Abraham said to him? If they do not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe someone who rises from the dead. That's an authoritative word, Moses. My friend, Moses is Genesis. If you don't believe it, you're not going to believe it. And you have a responsibility to believe it or there are eternal consequences to face. That's why when we read our Bible, when the plain sense makes sense, we seek no other sense. Because God said, in the morning and the evening were the first day and it was good. I think it's going to be pretty neat to get to heaven and have the Lord explain some of these Missing links. Maybe there's even a huge DVD player. Order up me a huge pizza and a 55-gallon drum of Mountain Dew. <laughs> Click on the DVD player. In the archives, Lord. Maybe I send Gabriel or Michael. Hey, Gabe, go in the archives and get me the days of creation. I want to sit back and see it all. I have an idea it's going to be something like that because that's part of where our song is going to come from. When we see our awesome God and somehow it's all set before us and we click on the DVD of heaven and we see how he spoke the worlds into existence, we're going to burst out in amazing songs of praise. It's going to be awesome. Might even have time to fast forward it and see David kill Goliath or something. Little, little adventure themes there. We have an awesome God, people. Why would we be embarrassed of Him? Why would we hold our Bibles and say, God didn't give us enough information because I can't explain it all? Listen, I can't explain how my cell phone works. I can't explain a lot of things. I can't explain how my wife's electric toothbrush works. It doesn't mean that it's not true. It's right there. And it was good.
Let's bow in prayer. So, Father, we humble our hearts one more time in closing. I want to say thank you for the clarity of your word. Ask your forgiveness for the doubting of your word. Ask for the courage to face a world that is rushing against us. And sometimes we feel like the guy at the beginning who's the only guy going against the traffic flow. Just give us a peace in our hearts and a confidence that your word is true. And Lord, we see the evidence of it everywhere. Help us not to be shaken, but having done all, to stand. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, as we go, may we reflect on these things and just stand in awe of who you are. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.